You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Hello there and thanks for joining me Sharon Noonan for tonight's Best Possible Taste. It's the third Tuesday for the month so you'll be hearing the clinking of bottles when our resident wine guru Ron Forrestal of Forrestal Wine Merchants joins me shortly in the studio. This week I'm out and about and I meet up with chef culinarian Anthony O'Toole to find out more about the Skillet Initiative and I'll also be talking to Lucy from Ballyhoura Mushrooms in County Limerick. Food journalist Dee Laffin has details on the Foodie Town Awards, which saw the Burren crowned the winner and Derry the runner-up. Dee was one of the assessors who visited the 10 shortlisted towns, so it's going to be interesting to hear all about her travels. And finally, to end off the show, we're going to get Kenmare foodie Karen Coakley on the phone to share a delicious beef rendang recipe. So pens at the ready, please. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. Now, as I said, it's Wine Tuesday and time to invite Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants to come into the studio. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ron, you're very welcome to the studio this evening. Thanks, Sharon. And tonight you're going to talk about European wines. Yes, what I thought was that I'd, I'd take in a few samples of good value European wines because the newer wines are, get so much attention from Australia, South Africa, Chile, Argentina that it's nice to go back to some of the more traditional wines that people may have seen for a while. So I've taken two wines from the south of France, uh, from the Languedoc, the very south of France, two from Spain, uh, and then one from the northern Italy and one from southern Italy. You're only back from Italy yourself. What part of Italy were you in? In Puglia, down very south, right down in the hill. It was lovely. Wine tasting. Wine tasting. Actually, one of the wines that I have here is from there. Okay, well, let's start with that one. Sure, yeah. It's, it, this is a Primitivo from Puglia. It's from the very south, as I say. This one's called a Barocco. Barocco is the is the uh, architecture is the stone architecture that's very prevalent in the south of Italy. It's a red. It's a red. Now it's a fairly full-bodied reds. They don't make anything that's that light particularly. They make they, they don't make a lot of white wines. They make a lot of roses and a lot of full-bodied reds. And unlike French full bodies, they're not very deep in color or that. They just tend to be full of fruit, kind of have a rough kind of feel to them. But the idea that the, it goes with the cuisine. The cuisine has a lot of um, red meat, a lot of stews, a lot of um, pasta with tomato sauce. The, it needs a fairly strong red wine to stand up with. It looks like an expensive bottle of wine. Not at all, as it turns out. Uh, they make very good value wines in the post to the north of Italy, which tend to be much more expensive. Like this is an 11 euro bottle of wine, which is a, it, it's smashed. It's very good. Primitivo. Is, is doing very well for a couple of reasons. Italy needed a, a red because Pinot Grigio is going so well. It needs a red to push with it. Uh, Chianti isn't quite it because it's a bit more expensive. It's a bit too expensive. Montepulciano, kind of an old traditional one. Some of the quality be very, very, very questionable in some of it. Whereas Primitivo, it's pronounceable, which is important, uh, which is a lot of the obstacles for Italy have. And it's a, it's a, it's a real full body drink people get more than what they expected when they when they get it a lot of restaurants are using it as house wine it's a great house wine it's definitely one to try them yeah absolutely and the white that you brought from italy then is it a pinot grigio it's that a pinot you have grigio there? yeah i brought pinot grigio because just because they're so popular i carry about five pinot grigios on, on my list at the moment and they all equally sell and the reason i have five of them is because i do quite a bit of business with restaurants that are quite close to each other so i i tend to avoid products that other people have because one restaurant doesn't particularly like to have the restaurant two doors away having the same thing. So that's why I end up with five Pinot Grigios. And do you find it seasonal that you would sell more of it in the summer or coming into the winter? Is it equally as popular? It's, it's more popular during the summer, all white wine is in general, when the weather is better. Uh, the weather wasn't as, as nice this year, obviously, as the two previous years. And we noticed a difference in the, in the breakdown between red and white. Uh, white normally strives ahead like 60-40% during the summer whereas didn't have that this year because didn't have the weather No we certainly did not no. So tell us a little bit more about this Pinot Grigio Pinot Grigio Il Caggio uh, from Veneto north of Italy um, this is a really good value one this is a 10 euro bottle of wine um, smashing product uh, these are a relatively small producer um, make a couple of different levels of Pinot Grigio this is like mid-level one they make one that's a bit better value than this and one that's a bit more exclusive 
but it's a smashing product. It's now Pinot Grigios are don't have a whole lot of of, of flavour to them as they turn out. They tend to be quite um, uh, they tend to finish quite quickly when you drink them. But this is a really nice crisp dry one, and, and they're all dry. But this is a really nice crisp dry one. I think it's a lovely product and it looks great and and looks it has an awful lot got to do with Pinot Grigio. And it is a screw cap yes, compared yeah. to, to the, the red, which has the cork. I had this discussion in, while I was initially actually about screw caps in red, and they have, they've, they've toyed the idea for a long time in the south of Italy, particularly to put their reds into screw caps. But they say several markets in the world just don't want them in screw caps. So as soon as they get uh, the majority of markets that want it, they'll do it, but they just don't have that... Um, that requests at the moment. I think there's just a mindset there that the screw cap means it's not as good quality as with the cork. Now, we know from you mm. having discussed this on the show a number of times in the past that that is not the case, but I just think that's people's perception. I think it is. I think and Ireland isn't, isn't the biggest culprit for that now, really. Ireland have taken to it very well. Other markets have not taken to it as well. Sure, they'd say Ireland would drink it out of a dirty <laughs> sock. That's probably but they've taken to it extremely well. Like, um, yeah. and, and I find now that more people are demanding screw caps that they're avoiding corks um, and, but it's, it's other markets particularly Dutch markets and things that will just he's saying won't touch any kind of quality red at all they just won't take them in screw caps it's very interesting so, there yeah. you go now you also have some French and some Spanish yes I'll go to the French one next which is from the south of France a huge wine production area in south of France called Languedoc runs right across from the from the Spain border nearly across all the way across the bottom of France uh, huge productions, but some really smashing small vineyards uh, producing some some amazing wine, and wine that is really good value, just over ten euros a bottle for this again. But it's it's like if you're to take the equivalent Australian red that would be of the same blend as this would be, you'd be talking about eighteen or nineteen euros at least for it. So I think they're they're way beyond what the price are. This is a Domaine de la Pene. It's a it's a in the white, it's a blend of two grapes, which is a, a Viognier and uh, a Grenache Blanc, which is a, a two grape varieties unique to, to, to the south of France. And then the red is a Syrah Grenache, which is a very traditional blend of grapes, which is used in, in, in Australia as a lot as well. It's a very traditional south of France grape. This is, again, this is a fairly full-bodied red, but the white is very interesting because it's a kind of real wintertime kind of white. It's not your Pinot Grigios are your really crisp, dry whites. It's much more to it. It has much more, doesn't need as much chilling. It has much more full-bodied, lovely product, lovely product to drink, particularly um, around Christmas time. And again, they look great. And I, and I know it doesn't make any difference to what's inside the bottle, but it's, I think the packaging, if somebody goes to the trouble of, of making the packaging um, attractive, make it look like it's, it's, it's boxing above its weight, I think that has a huge impact on the, on the wine itself even. Well, absolutely. And you're talking about Christmas there and we're a bit early talking about it. But at the same time, if you're going to somebody's house at Christmas or you want to give them a bottle mm. of wine, like these all look like very expensive bottles of wine. Yeah, I think that's it. And, and you know, the thing about about our portfolio of wines is that I don't sell anything that's in any shops at all. I avoid everything that's in shops, which means that we do particularly well at Christmas because there's an awful lot of people who want to get packages, who wants to get six bottles or something in a wooden box that... That you know you can't walk down the street and find out exactly how much it was worth. You know mm-hmm, that's important course, yeah. as well. So yeah. that's that's what we try to to achieve. And then just on the Spanish ones, I picked two. Um, I think very interesting Spanish products because I'm using them. They're fairly new to me. I just started taking them in about two months ago, and I'm using them as house wine in restaurants because they're a, a Macabo blend. They're a, the Monastero is the brand name, uh, de Levinas, and then in the white is a Macabo. Again, it's not a dry, crisp white. It's a more full-bodied white. And in the red, um, it's a Tempranillo, and it's really nice. And these are great value. This is like an 850 bottle of wine. Wow, it's great value. And they're lovely. They're really nice. Now, now you know, you get what you pay for. You know, that the, you're not going to be, uh, the aftertaste isn't going to last for 30 seconds now. They're going to die off much quicker, but they're very easy to drink. Um, lovely with food. They're not really, the white isn't a particularly non food wine now you need to be eating something when you drink it but whenever you say the aftertaste dies off quite quickly is that not a better wine to have when you're not eating with it when you're maybe just sitting at home front yeah, of the yeah, tv exactly, or yeah. in the pub for example though you, may, you probably don't get these in the pub they don't come in the small bottles no they don't no you're right exactly well the they're when they listen if anything that you spend under about 10 euros a bottle for it's going to die off pretty quickly now there's just no way of avoiding that 
and anything you spent over a tenner by the euro it'll just get better and better you know, that's just a euro makes a huge difference in a bottle of wine and and I just think it's 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 hilarious to see the the products that are sold at half price there's nobody selling a bottle of wine in the country at half price mm-hmm. it just doesn't happen because the duty and the VAT is so high on them that it's just it's impossibility that it was and if you see it advertised for half price it was never full price anywhere in its life that's the price of the bottle of wine whatever it was you see it advertised at so, so what I've tried to do is find products that they have some of them are under 10 euros a bottle uh, the majority of what I have tends to be between 10 and 12 13 that kind of price and then obviously I have products for restaurants that go way above that. But, and uh, I think there's super value around that range, that range. Really, really good value. Okay, so that's six bottles. They're all European and they're ranging from 8.50 to 11 euros. Yes. So the, the, the cheapest one is 8.50 and the dearest one is 11 euros, which yeah. is not expensive at all for wine. And if people want to get details, they go onto the website, they'll get your contact information, yep. which is forestal.ie. And before you go, we must talk about a wine goose chase. Oh, Susan yes, Boyle's yeah. play just very quickly to let people know that we're bringing it to Marketplace Cafe in Adair on Friday, the 6th of November. It's an aid of the Alzheimer's Society Daycare Centre in Adair and also Ian's Trust. And I saw the show a few weeks ago. You haven't seen it yet. No, I haven't at all. I saw it a few weeks ago in Antrim and I really enjoyed it. A one-hour show, one woman. Susan Boyle comes from uh, Kildare, not to be confused with a, a different Susan Boyle from across the water. And Susan studied arts and drama at UCD, but she grew up in a pub, so she had a great interest in alcohol and did her wine exams and a few years ago she wrote this fantastic play it's all about the Irish leave in Ireland to go to winemaking regions of the world and during it we get to taste three wines that all have Irish connections and you very generously have sponsored the wine for the night oh yeah it sounds like it's a well, first it sounds like a great night and there are two great causes obviously which is um yeah and I think it's a great and of course there's there's food from from um, the marketplace cafe from Cathy as well on the night which is which it sounds like a great night. Yeah, and it's only it. only an hour, so it's you know a yeah, good yeah. way to start or end an evening, whatever time suits you at seven o'clock or nine o'clock. And you have tickets to sell. I have tickets to sell, and Marketplace Cafe Adair also has tickets to to sell. So if people want to get in touch with either of us, then yeah, we can pass those on twenty five euros, and that includes the three wine tastings plus then there's some mini pizzas there as well. So it should be a great night. I'm looking forward to it. Super. Yeah, absolutely. So we shan't talk to you between now and then, Ron, so we'll talk to you maybe a couple of weeks after that. And in the meantime, thanks very much for coming in. No problem. Thanks, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Ron, who will return all being well next month. And thanks to his lovely daughter, Lily, who came along with him tonight and has left me some lovely chocolate chip cookies that I'm going to enjoy during the break. If you have a wine question for Ron before his return next month, you can email it to me, s.noonan at live.ie, and I'll pass it on to him. Still to come tonight, I'm out and about and I meet up with chef culinarian Anthony O'Toole to find out more about the Skillet Initiative. Food journalist Dee Laffin has details on the Foodie Town Awards, which saw the Burren crowned the winner and Derry the runner-up. And we'll be finishing off tonight's show with a delicious beef randang recipe, thanks to Kenmare foodie Karen Coakley. Next, though, it's time to put the spotlight on an artisan producer. At a recent expo in Dublin, an East Limerick producer of foraged and cultivated mushrooms caught my eye. I was familiar with Ballyhura mushrooms as they supplied some of the best restaurants in Ireland, but I'd never personally met the team behind it. So I was delighted when I came upon Lucy Cregan and seized the opportunity to find out firsthand more about her award-winning products. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Lucy, you have a very unusual range of, of products here that all come from mushrooms. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I started with uh, growing a range of speciality mushrooms. Um, originally it was a hobby, sort of turned into a business. And from the mushrooms that we grow and forage, um, we've developed a range of uh, very lovely, tasty mushroom products. So give me a few examples of some of the ones that you have here. You have a mushroom ketchup. How is this made? It looks, it looks kind of like an oil. How, how is it made and what would it be used for? Okay, so um, mushroom ketchup, it's kind of like a soy sauce, but made with mushrooms. Um, uh, so basically it's made with the mushrooms that we grow and some wild mushrooms and um, a little bit of salt um, 
And basically what it is, is it's a concentration of mushroom flavour um, and you would use it exactly the same way as you would use soy sauce, uh, either to marinate um, or to enhance the flavour of certain dishes. And you also have a sap oil. Yeah, so this is a wild mushroom infused oil. Um, yeah, uh, so basically you can, it's got a wonderful smoky, savoury flavour. You can use it as a drizzling oil. Um, it's really amazing on risottos, pasta dishes or fantastic with eggs. Lovely. Okay. I see a product here that Karen Coakley, Ken Mayer Foodie, who does the Kerry report on the show, is mad for and it's porcini dust. Yeah, absolutely. So porcini um, is actually the same mushroom as sep. Sep is the French name. Porcini is the, um, the Italian name. And basically, yeah, it's a mushroom season. Uh, with a little bit of Irish sea salt added and you can use it again to enhance the flavour of certain dishes, sauces, soups, risottos, uh, casseroles, that sort of thing. Or you can actually use it as a seasoning directly on your dish at the end. Or as Karen has used in the past, she's made some um, potato crisps and seasoned them with the porcini dust. How long have you been, have you been doing this? Um, we've been um, doing this for four years now. Uh, commercially, as I said, it was a hobby turned into um, a business. Uh, so I started with uh, basically arriving in Ireland, found that I couldn't get uh, different varieties of mushrooms. And when I did find them, they were either imported um, or in really bad condition. So I started to grow my own mushrooms. This then led into the foraging side of things. We got really interested in that. And then um, I obviously spotted a gap in the market and decided to do a business plan. And, and here I am four years later. What is your background? You're from Scotland and were you in the food industry whenever you were over there? No, um, so my background is in microbiology. Um, I did a PhD in uh, microbiology at UCC uh, but just loved, always loved food and specifically mushrooms. Um, um, yeah, and I worked in the food industry for a while working on different flavours. Um, so yeah, it's sort of a combination of um, passions really, you know. Well, being based in Ballyhura, do you find that from a foraging perspective, there is lots of lots of mushrooms there to to gather? Um, yeah, there it's amazing. There are a, a vast array of different varieties of mushrooms available in Ireland. Um, I suppose, yeah, I mean, like it takes time to find different locations where the mushrooms grow. Um, it's like they're very guarded secrets as well you know you don't tend to reveal your foraging spots to anybody um, yeah but it, it is amazing how many different varieties there are and uh, yeah we, we would go further afield than just the Balahauras for the mushrooms within Ireland um, foraging well. and it's por- in very important whenever you are foraging to have the right utensils the right types of knives and not to over forage an area that you, that you find has something that you want to take home Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I mean, obviously foraging is something that you don't take lightly. You, might, you, you should know what you're doing. Um, you can't just go picking anything because obviously there are, there are poisonous mushrooms out there, like there are poisonous berries and herbs and things like that. So really know what you're doing prior to going out foraging. But it's such a fun activity as well, you know, and, and highly addictive. Um, yeah, so go out there with um, a nice basket. Um, a foraging knife and um, enthusiasm and uh, yeah just go out there and forage and, um, and, and learn about it buy some books on it uh, become informed on it and uh, no, no, definitely know the bad ones um, that's kind of the uh, yeah, that's, that, that's definitely a real to remember. Now, I can't help but notice the number of great taste stickers that are on some of the products here. You've obviously won a lot of awards. Yeah, we were delighted. Um, so we entered um, a number of products into the Great Taste. We're delighted to get four awards. So two three stars, uh, one two star and one one star. And uh, yeah, I mean, like this was just, uh, you know, we were just bowled over basically by receiving these awards especially the three stars it's the highest accolade you can get and uh, the um, the judging is, is very rigorous so I'm delighted now uh, to have to have gotten such uh, great awards and you have three stars for more than one product I see yeah so we have three stars for the sep oil um, so the wonderful uh, infused oil and um, three stars for the mushroom vinegar so the mushroom vinegar is uh, made from um, Irish cider vinegar and again the mushrooms that we grow and some wild mushrooms and basically again it's all about the flavour extracting that wonderful flavour that you get from all the different mushrooms. What would you use it for? 
the, the, the mushroom vinegar has so many uses. So marinades, dressings, sauces. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it is a, it's a wonder product really, you know. And I want to ask you about this product as well. Yes, this is uh, the Mami powder. Uh, so I made with a selection of our mushrooms, um, some sea, seaweed and a little bit of um, Irish sea salt. And again, the whole umami thing, um, mushrooms are uh, have high levels of glutamic acid, which, is, which gives you that wonderful umami flavour, wonderful savoury flavour um, that everybody is talking about today. Um, and it's great because obviously you get that kind of uh, salty savouriness without the addition of salt so it's it's quite a, a healthy alternative as well to salt okay, great listen there's such an array here what is your favorite product out of them all in the in the entire range which one is your number one is it like asking you to choose a favorite child yeah kind of it really is. okay top three then <laughs> top three okay well it would have to be obviously um the mushrooms that i grow which is number one because without them this wouldn't be possible wouldn't be possible to make all the different products um yes yeah, so that's kind of where it all came from um, the the inspiration for the products um second one would be the mushroom vinegar um and the third one for me would be the the mushroom ketchup and if people want to get hold of the products where's the best place for them to go Okay, so at the moment um, I do two farmers markets in Cork, Man Point on a Thursday, Middleton on a Saturday. Uh, we're also in the process of setting up um, a new website, um, so hopefully have a, an online store up and running. And um, I'm here at the, the Food Hospitality Ireland show to really um, uh, look for uh, speciality shops who want to stock uh, our products. So um, yeah, so hopefully um, this year we'll roll out to a few shops in Ireland and then potentially the UK um, in the, uh, 2016. And just tell us your web address before you go. So it's www.balahauramushrooms.ie. Great, lovely to talk to you Lucy. Thank you very much. Cheers. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and if you've just joined us, we heard earlier in the show from wine guru Ron Forrestal of Forrestal Wine Merchants. Ron was talking about different wines from Europe. And just before the break, I met Lucy Creakin from Ballyhura Mushrooms. If you're just joining us and missed some of the show, don't worry as it will be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week along with all the previous shows and you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. Now still to come tonight, I'll be talking to Anthony O'Toole about the Skillet Initiative and we have a lovely beef rendang recipe by Kenmare foodie Karen Coakley to look forward to. Next, though, we're going to talk about the RAI's Foodie Towns campaign, which shortlisted 10 towns in Ireland. And last week, the Burren was crowned the ultimate foodie town with Derry, a worthy runner-up. Perfect timing for the Northern Ireland Year of Food in 2016. Food journalist Dee Laffin was one of the assessors who travelled the length and breadth of the country visiting the 10 finalists. And Dee is on the phone now. Cheers. Chin chin. Salud. Schleiter. Dee, thanks a million for taking the call this evening. And the Burren have proved themselves to be the top foodie destination for 2015. But before we talk specifically about the Burren, you had the wonderful job of going out around mm-hmm. 10 of these fabulous food destinations in Ireland. Myself and Eva Carrigy basically were hired by the RAI to be the assessors of the 10 shortlisted towns in this year's competition. There were other judges on the panel um, that basically decided the shortlist. So everybody who entered, um, I believe there was almost 30 entries. And we all sat down and based on the application that they had sent in, we shortlisted 10 finalists. Those 10 finalists were Boyne Valley, Dungarvan, Oath, Kilkenny, Kinsale, Loophead Peninsula, Sligo, uh, West Cork and the Burren and Derry, sorry, as well. And then basically they were shortlisted um, based on their applications. And then myself and Aoife were hired to go around town to town and basically assess them based on a site visit. What they were kind of told was, you know, they could include a presentation if they wished. They could show us the best of their 
town or or regions because it was a mix of regions and towns that entered and whatever they felt they needed to show us to show us the the kind of best across a, a few different areas you know the visitor experience the local knowledge and participation of of everybody there local producers uh, festivals and events that they might have you know calendar if they have things like that and everyone kept laughing at myself and Eva, but basically it was an amazing job and we were so privileged to do it but it was actually really tough as well one because we actually decided to try and fit in two places per day and do and do the 10 over five days so a whole week and basically everyone had all those things that I was saying that they could show us it really they were just had around two to three hours max per destination so that's a lot to fit in for some place especially if there's more ground to cover and they want to bring us to a few different places or things like that so it was very difficult in terms of trying to soak up all that information that we had to ask all the questions we needed to ask investigate everything get a sense of the place of their plans of their strategies of their future projects of their of what's on offer at the moment to get a visitor experience within that short space of time was quite difficult and then rush on to the second place make sure we got them both in in the same day. The 10 places are all corners of Ireland so really it was very ambitious to do them all in five days. Tried to group them in pairs so we were fortunate in that way that we were able to do that. First day we did Sligo and Derry, the second day we did Boyne Valley and Hope and we did Kilkenny and Dungarvan together, we did Kinsale and West Cork together and we did Loophead Peninsula and Burn, obviously, together. Like, if you think about the competition itself, I, I really am such an advocate for it because they're all collaborating together and working together to be the best foodie destination in Ireland. And, you know, they are just entering this competition to get some recognition, to maybe keep the momentum going, to let other people know, in terms of marketing, you know, within within Ireland and on an international scale to let people know that their area is great for food and for and for visitors to come and see us and taste it and experience it. Myself and Aoife, you know, we were both just saying we're so excited about Ireland as an island, a food island and a food destination for not just international visitors, but for us, like for, for people here, the domestic tr- visitors, like, and these 10 that were shortlisted are just the best at it at the moment for different reasons. Some of them just have amazing community spirit and amazing collaborations that have just come together all at once at the moment. And you can just see that there's years of hard work behind it, but that it's now just coming to fruition. They've got lots of thing happening, things happening that make this an all-year-round visitor experience. Let's talk a bit about the runner-up dairy first before we talk about the winner, the Burren. Yeah. So tell us about dairy. Was this your first time in dairy, or had you visited there before? I had been there before, but it had been had been a good a good long time since I'd been up there. And also, I don't think I had really gone to all the places that you know we got to see and everything we got to see when we went up there. Um, I have to say Derry was really, really impressive. I was taken aback. Not that I didn't expect it to be good. It, it's amazing what they're doing up there. Just to let you know about a few little things, they're changing their brand identity going forward now is going to be food. So food is going to be how they promote themselves, both internationally and in Ireland and the UK. They want to be the food city of Ireland. They want to put themselves on the map for that. They have loads of other things going. I mean, Derry is amazing. Like, historically, there's loads to see. There's um, culturally, you know, that we saw some street theatre um, they had for us and things like that, just so we could see all the different things it has to offer. But as a food destination, that's how they really want to put themselves on the map. And they have some amazing producers, both like in the city, but also outside the city. And they're very keen to link the rural areas with the city and that and they've looked even abroad at other cities to see how how had that been done well in other cities like say for example san sebastian in spain they kind of looked at how they work with kind of connecting the rural and agriculture with the city and making sure that that connection is seen everywhere so that what that means is things like provenance on menus you know so when you're in a when you're in a restaurant or a cafe that they name the cheese and it's a local cheese and and all these kind of things and that you can also buy the local produce in shops around the city and promote it and everybody is aware of all the products that are there and there's a new brewery up there there's a lot of new 
a lot of funding in Derry. They've been very lucky to get a sizable amount of money for different areas and they're creating areas within the city that are going to be hubs of different types of food and things like that. They also have a large calendar of um, of festivals and events. Next year for 2016 is the Northern Ireland Year of Food and they are um, one of the main drivers of that. They've planned six food events every month for the whole 12 months of next year. It's a lot of events. Not all massive, but they all, you know, they have different sized ones, but they are all food related. They all include using some sort of local aspect and about the culture and linking it with the um, area and stuff like that. So Derry really, I mean, has come on an awful lot in the last few years in terms of what they have to offer. But also they're all just collaborating together. All the local chefs work together in the festivals and and promoting the food that they have up there. You know, we met the mayor um, and and the tourism officer that works up there. And there's a lot of people working together. One of their main themes that they're looking at, initiatives and stuff like that, is linking themselves with Nord, Nordic countries, so like Scandinavian, um, Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, things like that. They're, they're doing initiatives there that they can kind of um, swap food cultures and, and learn from each other. They're setting up the slow food movement up there as well, and that's going to be a big driver of um, their ethos when it comes to food as well. So, so Derry was a very well-deserved runner-up, and I uh, wouldn't be surprised if they're if they're up there again um, over the next few years. But it was the Burren that took the crown. So, tell us what really stood out for the Burren. I think the story. I mean, it's it's many things, but. The story of the Burren and the food story that has come out of there. They, the Burren called, they call themselves the Fertile Rock. That's how they're going to promote themselves. And the reason they call that is because when everyone thinks about the Burren, they just think about this big rock. It's kind of with like, oh, it's got flora and fauna and that's, it's a beautiful thing to go and see and it's got dolmens and it's got all these ancient historical sites and things like that. But you don't really think about the Burren as being this bountiful place of amazing produce and you know that sort of thing so a lot of tourists go there already to see it but when they go there they're really surprised by the food culture that's developed down there and the reason they call it the fertile rock is because basically everyone in the area and the farmers very quickly realized that to keep the burn as it is to have those wonderful flora and fauna growing and to have a fertile ground to grow produce that they had to use and maintain the ancient farming methods that have been there for a long time. And it's a, it's a thing called winterage. And it's unique in Ireland in that in Ireland, everyone during the, all the farmers and, um, in the country, they bring their cattle in during the winter. But in the burn, they bring them out in the winter or they leave them out on top of the rocks because basically the, the, the rock in the burn, it absorbs all the heat during the summer and then it radiates it during the winter. So the warmest place for the cattle to be in the winter is actually grazing on the rocks and all the heather and everything that grows in in between it. And if they didn't put the cattle out to graze on the rocks during the winter, then the heather would completely, and other kind of bushes, would completely take over and would actually kill all the beautiful flora and fauna and things like that, all the wild herbs and flowers that can also be eaten and everything. So actually, they had to maintain these ancient farming methods to sustain the burn as it is. Well, it's very timely that you say that now because that is on this weekend in the Burren. So yes, hopefully a few right, people might, yes, might go up this weekend and they have the food fair and everything on. Now, unfortunately, we're running out of time, Dee. Yeah. It, I mean, 10 great places there for oh, people absolutely. to go and see. And obviously the Burren took the crown followed by Derry, the runner-up. And if people are planning food trips in Ireland this year, they are spoiled for choice. Oh, absolutely. And I think that is the main message just to say to everyone is that there was a shortlist of 10, there were 30 entries, but the the food culture around Ireland is alive and thriving. Fantastic. Dee, thanks very much for telling us all about it tonight. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Apologies for the bit of interference on the line there. Stay with us now and we'll be back after this short break. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM.
Welcome back to the best possible taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, we heard all about the Foodie Town of Ireland competition from food journalist Dee Laffin. Earlier in the show, wine guru Ron Forrestal had wine recommendations for us and I met Lucy Cregan from Ballyhura Mushrooms. You can listen to those interviews again when tonight's show goes up on the best possible taste podcast, which is on soundcloud.com and they'll be posted there later in the week. Now, I want to introduce you to a guy called Anthony O'Toole. Anthony is a chef culinarian who I follow on Twitter. And last year, he was involved in a project called The Skillet. And this was brought to my attention by journalist Katie McGuinness at the Dingle Food Festival last year. So when I came across Anthony in Dingle at this year's festival, it was the perfect opportunity to find out more. So let's have a listen to what he told me. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Anthony, you're involved in the Skillet. What exactly is that? Uh, Skillet is um, a programme set up by myself and a couple of other people in Dublin um, teaching unemployed, well, originally it was unemployed youth, um, getting them in involved in the food industry because we believe food is a common medium. Um, something that food, you can forgive things over food, basically. And why did you decide to do this? Um, it's an idea that came up with one of the guys, Tommy, um, he's a social worker and he was wanted to see how, you know, to give back maybe to the community, people who've come out of prison and uh, getting them back into community. And then he had a link, his uh, girlfriend is a food writer. So that kind of an idea between them two. And then we just started to talk about it and we just came up with the, this concept. So last year you got a group of people together and what exactly did you do with them? Uh, we got a group of six people together for two weeks and we took them into a kitchen for um, a couple of days and we did a tour of Dublin for the first day so it was kind of like an icebreaker so we went to places like Pichet, Sheridan's, Cheesemongers, Cater Way a lot of food business who, who said yes, come on in and uh, just have a you know look around taste feel of the food and then we went back to the kitchen then for the next couple of days and we started to cook foods that they were going to do at the pop-up at the end of it in Royal College Surgeons. In terms of skills and food knowledge what level were they at? Basic they didn't like they didn't know the difference between parsley and coriander you could so that's where the basic of skills were we did teaching um, they had to identify herbs was one of the days the first days and not all of them basic herbs like thyme, rosemary um, they had like we threw in lemongrass um, we threw in spices there as well like ginger and different things to see where they identify them as herbs as well they just had no no clue at all they could identify fish, chips um, you know anything out of packets but not fresh food at the end of the project you said you had a pop-up tell us a bit about that uh, yes the pop-up we had it there was 40 people invited and it was made up mainly of their friends and family. Um, and then we had some media people and loads of sponsors who donated from businesses to just individuals who came along. And the guys ran, helped in the kitchen for the first day for um, prep. And then for the second day, we put them all out on the floor and they ran the floor for the, in the evening with Declan Maxwell and Aoife Cargi. It was exciting. It was, it was good. And two fantastic front of house people there. Yes, very two. And two different people as well. So you have Aoife, who is, you know, more casual based. And then you have um, you have Declan, who is more high end Michelin star. And it was good because we threw him into an environment that was an event organ- organization. And it was it was good. It was really good. Can you remember what the menu was? Um, yes, I can. We did a lot. They did canapes from smoked salmon with brown bread. They did a brambly apple cordial to go with Prosecco. Um, they had um, balsamic chicken skewers with rocket and pistachio pesto. Um, they had prawns as well with chili in it, so it was quite accessible, just keeping it basic, that food that they would identify with. Then they had the starter with um, roasted beetroot galette with red almond marmalade. And they had, for mains, they did shoulder pork which we got from Ed Hick and we did a Chinese style just take and roast dinner and they did a spatchcock chicken with um, herbs on it and then vegetables broccoli I think it was charred broccoli so kind of giving flavour to to vegetables and I can't remember now oh, they did 
boulangere potatoes. That's a that's a huge uh, menu. A lot. Did, did people choose what they wanted then? It wasn't a case of you have this, or was it like a tasting? It menu? was a taste, kind of Alice of France in the middle of the table, basically. The the only thing that was plated was the starters. So we're kind of skill set. So they had to teach about um, carrying three plates for starters, and then for mains, it was more about performance, tiercher for mains. So they had to go out and. Um, in a line and present stuff in the middle of the table and then you know about crumbing down then afterwards so we did a lot of different sides of service as well as different styles of food as well throughout and for dessert it was a uh, big buffet of desserts as well so they did a lemon cake with a lemon drizzle cake with buttercream and cur- lemon curd um, and another no I think um, oh cream and berries as well so autumn berries because it was an autumn because it was a pop-up it wasn't in a traditional venue setting what challenges did that pose um it was it was challenging for everyone because you're working in a space that they weren't familiar with because they did it in rcsi and they did their training in another venue in um, king's inn so they had it was completely different for them that they had to take down from one air and one kitchen and then build up in another kitchen which was a smaller kitchen they're familiar with so it was a lot of challenges just moving logistic wise and then breakdown afterwards and then there was the energy of like the adrenaline as well and then the afterwards where everyone just collapsed on the floor and then you're like guys we have to clean up now and take it down so that was a little bit challenging as well but it was it was good it was great it was great um energy i've never I, I keep saying this to people talking about it and it's a year now going on that we did it a bunch of people that were so enthusiastic about food um, it was it was brilliant it was really good but was that enthusiasm always there or was that they kind of came along at the start and it was it was because of you and your colleagues that that enthusiasm was was generated I th- I think a little bit was there because it wouldn't have came along if they didn't because they you know these people come different backgrounds so we have people who have been in prison who um, are from inner city Dublin from different walks of life you know they have families who might not be encouraged now this is a, you know something that other people might identify with is that you, your mum or your dad or your bigger brother or sister or your granny might put you into the first place to work but these people don't have that they don't have that support so they had that little eagerness in there but they didn't they, you know, they didn't want to touch a knife or touch raw chicken um, eat herbs, anything that you identify with. But because we said to them every morning, you have to eat it, eat it 10 times. If you don't like it after eating it 10 times, then you don't like it. Um, and then they built up that excitement. And then having loads of people, you know, like Joe Mackin, who is a, you know, he's a brilliant restaurateur and a brilliant character in the industry coming in and talking about his background. And he's a, you know, a casual, cool, hip vibe there. So you can teach people, you don't have to be serious about food. You can have some fun as well. So, that enthusiasm was there as well and then you have like all the different characters as well so even in the kitchen myself and Ella who helped me we had kind of a kind of a good cop bad cop kind of thing but it was again we were kind of not fighting but kind of giving out to each other as well and it was kind of fun and interesting and that made it fun and interesting and that enthusiasm so it wasn't serious but serious in terms of you know you have to learn as well so at the end of it like we still meet them and they're like we want to do something next you know and that keeps us going to our next stage of this project so I would imagine that their friends and family that came along to the pop-up that night were very proud of what they had achieved they were very proud very proud they all like all of them stood up they were just so amazed of what they achieved and they were like did these guys do this and like yes they did they did everything themselves like a little bit helps here and there but they were good just they just need support um, and encouragement you know there were to encourage them to come in in the morning get up early in the morning you know all the things that we all have to to you know fight battle in life they just have to do it as well you said that some of them they want to do it again what have they been doing in the meantime have any of them gone into the the food industry uh, one in particular went to work with uh, Thibaut in um, in Swords. It's a restaurant, is it? Uh, it's a baker in Swords. So Thib- uh, he has Thibaut the baker, so he does loads of sourdough breads. And one, he was the most successful, the guy who went there, Chris. He worked for him for a couple of months. Um, he was getting paid early mornings, but then um, just there was logistics in the early morning, so he left. And now he's going back into training again. 
Um, we had another person who went into chapter one for a couple of days and then someone did front of house and then um, so, some we've gone back into college now as well so they want to you know one's gone to do childcare. she's got her own home now so they're kind of you know use the confidence that they've built to move on their lives. Because that's one of the, the skills or one of the attributes that they develop from it is their confidence as well as these kitchen skills that you talk yes. about. Yes, yeah, like li- li- skills. life skills. Like food is common, uh, a medium that you can learn, you know, confidence, um, your communication skills, team building, uh, you just life that you have to get up and if there's a problem you have to deal with it and move on that's you know these are the skills that they learned and and i you know i think that's what we learned a lot as well as mentors we learned that you know this is what food does to everyone it's um it's an eye-opener it's good and what's the next step now what does the future lie for the skillet uh the next stage is we're setting up as a charity slash enterprise and we're going to work with um hopefully at the beginning stages, we're looking at working with business and community um, who work with people who, uh, in from all walks of life to get back into the community. So we're going to do the food aspect of that. And then we are looking to do um, a project with the Deaf Irish Deaf Society, which is going to be a big challenge, but it's an exciting one. It certainly sounds it. Fair play to you, Anthony. It's been great talking to you about it today and all the best with it for the future. Thank you. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Lovely to talk to Anthony and I'll be keeping an eye on his activity via Twitter for updates on the skillet. Another person who's great to follow on Twitter is Kenmare foodie Karen Coakley, who has a wonderful recipe for us to finish off tonight's show. Bon appetit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Karen, you have a lovely recipe for us this evening. Tell us what it is. Uh, it's for a beef rendang, Sharon, which has actually turned out to be one of my favourite, favourite curries. It's the Malaysian curry. Usually beef rendang is very dry, um, and I suppose if I was making it, technically it should be dry, but this is my variation of it, because at the end of the day I have the boys here, you know, to feed four kids and the husbands, and you kind of have to mix and match and do a little bit what they like. So I will add extra coconut milk into this to kind of just give it a really, really creamy texture to the sauce. Um, it's the ingredients basically are there's chilies, there's onions, there's ginger, there's garlic, there's cardamom, which is one of my favourite, favourite things. Galangal. Are you familiar with galangal? No, I've never heard of that. Galangal is a root. I think it's related to the ginger. And to me, what it has, it has that slight ginger taste, but it also has like a lemony, like a citrus taste to it. So it's really lively. There's lemongrass in this. Um, five, like, well, it's supposed to be fried chilies, but this is my variation, so I use fresh chilies. And like, you know, you think five chilies and you think, whoa, very hot. But it's actually not because what I do is cook it in the oven. I always cook my curries in the oven and I find that it kind of mellows it out nicely. So there isn't much heat off it at all. And the funny thing is this would be when I gave my cookery classes back in the spring. I did a curry evening and everybody loved this. And I've had so many people come back to me and say they've cooked it and they loved it. And there was a man recently met my parents and he said his wife had cooked it and he was telling my parents, how much he had loved it. So that's all great feedback. So that recipe is on my blog, com for anybody who'd like to see that. What meat do you put into it? Would you just get beef cubes or fillet beef cubes off your butcher? Any kind of beef. Uh, stewing, yeah, stewing beef is what I get off my butcher because I think, number one, the spices for me, I think, tend to mar- tend to kind of break down the meat anyhow. And what I will tend to do is cook it the day beforehand and then have it the following day. And even in that, and overnight, you know, and you're cooking it slow, so it'll break down fat, all the fat will render out of it. The slower you cook it, and the longer you cook it, the better for that reason alone. And you can get away with that. Um, there recently, little had beef very cheaply, and I can remember I stocked the freezer up. It was like a third of beef. So whatever, I'm not, like, fussy. Too fussy. And would you fry it up beforehand and, you know, well, to see the meat? Is, yeah, what I'll do is I will make my curry paste and you do that by putting um, your your chilies, your onion your ginger, your garlic, your galangal and your lemongrass into a little food processor you blend all of those up and you heat up your, fry, your well I use um, a cast iron kind of like, um, I have a lovely kind of a low round one I actually find those best for cooking curries and for cooking stews, I don't know why but I'm a great believer in that different utensils give different flavours, 
and I just find with this sometimes if you use a non-stick um, pan it doesn't dry out as much or it doesn't reduce down as much it can stay too wet and then you don't get the intensity of the flavours so this really works for me so anyway once they're fried once you fried off your uh, paste add in your beef let that brown and then you add in your coconut milk into the oven and let it cook for about an hour and a half two hours and it is gorgeous a little bit of lime over the end a lemon and always tastes better the next day whenever it has that bit of extra time to infuse absolutely and then curries for me I know when I started to cook cook curries first I was just so afraid of taking the step of going down the route of buying my spices um, you know and grinding toasting and grinding my spices but once you get familiar with them it really all that fear just goes away and now I couldn't go back to using a powder or using a paste because for me whenever I did I never got the you know, you have the layering. If you go to, imagine a really nice Indian restaurant and you have your most favourite curry and you get lovely kind of like grainy texture in the curry and you get a layering of flavour. That's what you get when you make your own curry with your own spices. And we're very lucky here in Khmer, we actually have a co-op and they sell big jars of the spices. So you can technically, if you're a first timer and if you're afraid and if you can find some place like this, you can go in with your book and if you want two tablespoons of galanga or sorry fenugreek or two tablespoons of cardamom pods they'll weigh out that much for you because I think sometimes people are afraid of having spices in their press and that they'll go off and that they lose their flavour but it really it's just a case of experiment and be brave and it's worth it all Do you serve it up with rice? I serve it I make a mushroom rice hairy bikers mushroom rice which is beautiful there's cinnamon and that mushrooms onions ginger mustard seeds um, gosh forgotten what else is in that because my husband isn't a big fan of plain rice so I'll go the whole hog and do the mushroom rice and if I'm feeling very extravagant I'll make naan bread and then serve it all with some natural yogurt it sounds like and of course the natural yogurt will calm calm it down if it is a bit too hot it for, is a bit spicy the natural yogurt should bring it right down or I would often throw some honey in if I feel I've overdone it with the chilies. well I was going to say sugar if you do make it too spicy Sugar will bring down the heat. So honey will be the same thing as presume whatever is in it. The sweetness will actually counteract some of the heat. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm in the mood now for curry this week, definitely after that conversation. And you know what? The weather is so miserable. There was one night there last week. It was just awful. It was great. It was raining. And I just said comfort food and it was beef rendang and they all loved it. Yeah. Sounds delicious. Well, thanks so much for sharing that with us this evening. As Sharon promptly goes off now to start clanging pots and <laughs> making her curry, Michael Noonan will be delighted. And enjoy the rest of your evening, Karen, and we will talk again soon. Thank you, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. A fantastic recipe from Kenmare Foodie Karen Coakley. Let me know if you give it a try. Tweet me some photographs at Queen of Org or drop me an email s.noonan at live.ie. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks so much for your company and to all of tonight's guests. Ron Forrestal, Lucy Cregan, Dee Laffin, Anthony O'Toole and Karen Coakley. A final reminder that the best possible taste podcast is online at soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. And don't forget about Susan Boyle's Wine Goose Chase. That's Susan Boyle from Kildare. That's Friday the 6th of November in Marketplace Adair in County Limerick. You can contact me for tickets. Until next week when I'm planning to look at the science behind our taste buds, take care and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!